Hi, this is Jamie O'Brien, and you are watching the TV Writer Podcast. My name is Greg Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, episode 107 for July 21st, 2020. Well, today I'm very pleased to bring you an interview with Jamie O'Brien. Jamie is the creator and showrunner of the new show, or relatively new show, Nosferatu on AMC. And you're going to love her story. Um, she talks a lot about uh, starting out at Yale as a playwright, uh, very similar to Steve Harper, who we just heard recently, and moving on up to um, breaking into TV, and uh, now she's a showrunner and show creator. This episode is sponsored by Pilar Alessandra of OnThePage.tv. Be sure to check out all the resources and classes on her site, and she also offers one-on-one -on -one coaching via Zoom. TV Writer Podcast viewers can get 10% off on any of her services. Just reach out to Pilar directly and tell her I sent you. You're going to love the interview with Jamie O'Brien. Let's roll. Well, I am so excited to be here with Jamie O'Brien, creator and showrunner of Nosferatu on AMC. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm doing great, Gray. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. Um, and uh, I, I love. Do you know what I? Ha I have to confess, I haven't seen the show, but I love that name, Nosfer Nosferatu. And I, I, it came from a book. Yes, it's um, the show is based on a book written by Joe Hill uh, called Nosferatu, and it is. Um, it stumps a lot of people because it's actually a vanity plate of um, of the the bad guy's car in the book and on the show, um, and so it's spelled N O S, the number four, the letter uh -huh. A, and the number two. Um, but it is meant to be an homage to Nosferatu, the old vampire flick. Very cool. Sounds like a fun show. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you like, if your fun is being creeped out, <laughs> for which for a lot of us it is. Um, and we'll get to talk about that a little bit later in the interview, but I, I just sure. want to hear all about you. Like what I, I know you went to Yale. Actually, oddly enough, the previous uh, person I interviewed went to Yale for playwriting. Uh, I don't know if you were around the same time, but before Yale, when did you know that you wanted to write and, and what did that look like for you? Um, thank you for asking that. I, uh, you know, I was one of those like nerdy kids who always wrote. Um, mm -hmm. I always kept a journal when I was in second grade. I used to make little paper books, um, mm -hmm. during recess when everybody else was playing jump rope, I would get pieces of paper and staple them together and make little books out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I kind of, you know, in high school, I was a theater nerd, uh, and was in the drama club and kind of came away from writing a little bit and was acting a lot. Uh, and then kind of, um, rediscovered playwriting when I was living in New York, uh, trying to be an actor, mostly being a waiter, discovering mm -hmm. I wasn't very good at acting. Um, and then remembering, oh yeah, I used to like to do this other thing too. Um, so I started writing again and that was how I wound up going to Yale Drama for playwriting. Very cool. So at, at that time, did you think I want to be a great playwright and that was all or had, did you think about TV writing or, or what was the, the sort of frame of mind at that time? Um, it was all about the theater. You know, mm -hmm. I was, like I said, I was a big theater nerd and um, I... I don't know why I didn't think that television writing, it never occurred to me as a thing that I could do hmm. um, or, or a thing that people did, I guess. Hmm. Um, uh, I guess if I had grown up in California, maybe instead of being interested in the theater, I'd have been interested in TV. But I grew up on the, you know, in the Northeast. Hmm. And um, yeah, so it didn't really occur to me that that was a, like an option, really, uh, until hmm. I was out of school. 
And so did uh, did you produce many plays in in that time, or or how did that transition happen? I have I have zero professionally produced plays. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, what happened was I went to drama school, and uh, when I got out of drama school, I moved back to New York City, and I became a nanny. And one of my classmates, a TV writer named Rollin Jones, uh, at that time moved out to California straight away and started working on a TV show called Weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't too long before my nanny job fell through and I was in a bad relationship and that fell apart and I didn't know where I was going to live. And, um, kind of my life was falling to pieces when he called me and said, you know, you should just come to California. I think you'd like it here. Mm. Um, and, and I think you'd like working in TV. You know, it was a time in which, you know, the shield was on TV. Weeds was on TV. The Sopranos was still on TV. The wire was on TV. And it seemed like there was a lot of really exciting writing and television happening. So Mm. I said, you know, why not? I'll give it a shot. And, um, and I moved out to California and actually my first job was working for my friend Rollins manager, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. in his office, um, when I arrived. Very cool. And so, you're here in LA. What now? Um, you mean back then? What now? Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. I mean, like as you're you're working for the manager, which which by the way, actually, is you probably know now a great way to break in. Um, uh, one of the re- most recommended ways is become an assistant to somebody in the business, and then just yes. network and write and and go from there. Uh, what? So just tell me what that looked like for you. Uh, well, when I first arrived, like I said, the, I, I kind of showed up. I had met Rollins' manager, a very nice guy named Larry Schumann, um, and I had met him when he was in New York for other reasons. Rollin kind of convinced him to meet with me, and um, he said, you know, if ever you're in California, look me up, and I don't think that he really expected me to show up at his office and say, I need a job, um, but he... Two things. First of all, he was kind. And second of all, uh, he had a very kind of overworked assistant already who was like, please hire her. I need some help. (laughs) Um, And so I kind of so I was lucky enough to get hired on as his second assistant, um, which meant a lot of filing. And, uh, you know, I will say I was in way over my head. It was a lot of hard work. The pay was really lousy. My car broke down as soon as I arrived in California. The public transportation system was kind of a mess and everything was really it was really a tough time for me, but mm. I knew nothing about television really when I arrived and just working there, I learned a lot about it without even meaning to just kind mm. of by absorbing the conversations that were happening in the room and reading the scripts that were there. Um, Larry reps, a lot of wonderful writers and, um, yeah, I, 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 it was an education for me for sure. Mm. And so when, when did you start writing um, TV scripts. Did you start with specs? Did you do a pilot or did you take any classes? What did that look like? You know, it's funny. Um, I remember cause I was like, uh, I, I, my friend Rollin had, um, had kind of broken into TV based off his playwriting work. Hmm. And my attitude at the time was like, well, you know, Rollin used his play as a sample, so I should be able to use mine as a sample. Now, Rollin's play was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> and um, had professional productions kind of all over the country, whereas my plays were like, 
I'd written them in grad school. And so I, I remember at the time, all of the advice that I was getting from people was write a spec. You have to write a spec. You have to write a spec. And for whatever reason, I just didn't for a really long time, um, which was foolish. And um, so kind of what happened for me next was I got a job as a writer's assistant on a show called Close to Home. One of my teachers from Yale Drama was running that show, and I reached out to him, and he hired me to be a writer's assistant there. So that was kind of like my next step mm -hmm. uh, towards being a TV writer. And I it got me into a writer's room. It got me closer to like the actual writing as opposed to just kind of filing scripts. Mm -hmm. um, which was great. And from there I got another, uh, I got another writer's assistant job after close to home was canceled. The line producer on close to home was a woman named Jill Danton, who is lovely. And she went to work on a show called Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Oh, I love that show. Um, which is a great show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she introduced me to Josh Friedman who created the show, uh, and was co-show running it with John Worth. And, um, they hired me to be, their writer's assistant. And again, still everybody was like, write a spec, write a spec, write a spec, write a spec. But I just didn't. You still didn't. <laughs> I, you know, and the excuses that I gave were that I was tired. Um, <laughs> I was like, too many hours. Uh -huh. um, and those things were true, but also it doesn't matter. You, you still have to do it. And um, actually what happened for me was uh, there was the writer's strike happened while I was working on the Terminator show. And mm -hmm. when we were down for the strike, I finally did write a rescue me spec. Um, it, that was the firefighter show that was mm -hmm. on FX. And, um, at that point I kind of knew enough people in Los Angeles and between having this spec, which was, I thought, pretty decent, and also a short play that I think wasn't enough on its own for people to be interested in reading me, mm. but was a good supplement to the Rescue Me spec because it was at least my own voice, um, mm -hmm. and it was short. And so the combination of those two pieces of material, um, I gave them to Josh Friedman to read. I gave them to everybody that I knew to read. And Josh very kindly uh, passed them on to his agent, Larry Sauls, who, um, sorry, I feel like I'm dropping a lot of names, but I just uh -huh. like all these people, so that's why. Yeah. But, um, yeah, who eventually, who read them and met with me and became my agent. Wow. And, yeah. And I, I, don't, I mean, I hear a lot, of, a lot of different stories. I don't often hear of somebody writing one spec and getting all of that. I mean, I had written plays and I had done a lot of like, I had put in my time in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I still, I did, I, it, it was kind of a roundabout way of getting there for sure. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, I don't want it to seem like it was quick and easy because it really wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the times we hear about overnight successes that are really like 10 years of hard work and then the overnight. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, I didn't have my first writing job in a writer's room where I was a staff writer until mm. I was uh, 35 years old. So, wow. um, yeah. So even though it's not, like, you know, like the, the uh, she wrote one spec and got a job. Like it wasn't really that. It was a so lot what, of what, crap. So what, what was that, that time? <laughs> Uh, sorry, uh, what, what was that time like then? So you, so you, you 
got an agent out of that spec, but between then and your first staff job, what was that time like? Um, I, the right, the strike ended. I went back to work on, um, on the Terminator show. Uh, and Josh and John were both really supportive of me. I was really lucky. And so whenever I had like a job interview, um, they would let me go to it. And it was like right when, um, you know, staffing season was starting up. So I had a couple of interviews. I remember I interviewed for cold case and didn't get it. Um, and then I interviewed for the mentalist and didn't get that. Um, and then, uh, and then I had, and then I met, um, for lie to me was the first ever TV show that I actually was staffed on. And that was very cool. Yeah. That was my first writing job. Neato. So now that you're actually, I mean, you, you, so that you'd already been in two different writer's rooms as, as an assistant. Yes. Yep. So, so you knew what the writer's room felt like, but what, what was it like when you started actually being in the trenches and, and, uh, in writing on staff? You know, um, I was really glad that I had been an assistant because I kind of like knew a little bit what to expect. Um, I was scared because I wanted to do a good job. And, you know, I had been working really hard for a long time to try to get this job and I didn't want to mess it up. Um, But it was it was helpful to have at least kind of seen the lay of the land ahead of time. Mm. Um, It made me feel just a little bit more confident about talking or not talking um, again, I felt really lucky. There were a lot of supportive writers who were upper level writers on that show. And I remember, um, there was a writer named Josh Singer who was, I think he was like a producer level writer on that show. And he kind of like, I remember him saying to me early on, cause I was terrified. And he said, um, he said, you know, the job of the staff writer is to just move the football down the field. He said, that's all you have to do. He said, you don't have to save the show or, you know, like just as long as you're moving the football down the field, you're good. And, um, and I'm always, I've always, that's stuck in my mind. I say it to other new writers now, Mm -hmm. um, because it kind of took the pressure off a little bit. Mm. Very cool. And, and so how long were you on lie to me? The first season I was Mm -hmm. there for the first season. Yeah. And then did you go from there to hell on wheels? I went from there to a show called um, The Deep End, which Deep was End. briefly on ABC. Um, it was six episodes on ABC, and it was created and show run by a great writer named Dave Hemmingson, and I met him on Lie to Me. He actually was a consulting producer on Lie to Me, uh, and so when his show went forward, um, he hired me there, which was really a lot of fun to work on, um, and then kind of the... The jump that I made from doing a lot of like uh, network procedurals came after Lie to Me. I went Mm. and worked on Big Love uh, at HBO um, in their final season, uh, which was really exciting because I had been a fan of Big Love for the Mm. first four seasons. And so it was fun to be able to write on that. Uh, And then I remember being so excited about it. And like the second week, the creators and showrunners, Mark and Will, they were like, this is going to be the last season. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then after Big Love was when I went to work on Hell on Wheels. Um, which is probably the show that I worked the longest on in mm-hmm. my career. Yeah. So a, a lot of a lot of writers describe a time that they really hit their stride. 
Um, what at what point do you think that was? Was it on Hell on Wheels? Was it before that? When did you really really feel like you were getting into gear, so to speak? I think it was definitely Hell on Wheels. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, prior to Hell on Wheels, and even at the beginning of Hell on Wheels, I was always so terrified. <laughs> um, mm -hmm that it was hard to settle in. And also, truthfully, I don't think I really understood how to write television. Uh, and I was rewritten a lot. You know, I tell this a lot, again, to young writers. When you're a young television writer, you get rewritten a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and my, all of my scripts, actually, my, my Lie to Me script, my Big Love script and my deep end script were all heavily rewritten by the showrunners. Um, and the first script that I wrote for Hell on Wheels was also heavily rewritten uh, by the showrunners. But I remember the showrunner at the time was a guy named John Scheiben. And when he got my writer's draft, he kind of said to me, um, he said, the problem with this draft is that I don't know whose point of view we're in any of the time. And I realized that what I had been doing was kind of like my playwriting training, which is I would just be like, these are the people in the room and here's what they say, as opposed to kind of directing the scene, you know, not obnoxiously, but a little mm. bit from the page so that you would be with the characters more and kind of understand what was happening cinematically in the scene a little bit better. Uh, and there was something about that that kind of clicked for me. Mm. Um, there were also just, again, like the the showrunners or the creators, um, Tony and Joe Gayton, even though they re rewrote the script, <laughs> um, they were kind enough to rehire me. They were kind enough to um, kind of explain what they were doing along the way. So I mm. learned a lot from it. And um, season two, <laughs> my scripts got rewritten, but less. And uh, and I think by season three, uh, you know, the showrunner was still kind of doing a polish, but it was much less kind of heavy lifting. And I felt much more kind of like ownership of my scripts um, as they aired because it was closer to what I had actually written. And I felt less guilty when people were like, I like loved your episode. I could be like, thank you, as opposed to I didn't really write that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was that's really I think where I learned how to write TV was on Hell on Wheels. Very cool. I, you know, because I, I hear about a lot of different show running styles and uh, and I know for them to take the time to help coach you like that, uh, that's massive. Especially when they were like insanely busy. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And um, they were even like, I remember... I remember like that, again, that first script, I turned it in and um, we were already kind of behind. It was a first season show. So there was a lot of like uh, back and forth with the network and trying to figure out how, what direction to go in. And they were, you know, there was rewrites happening for the previous scripts. I think I wrote episode four. And so there wasn't really a lot of time um, between, they, they were like, here are the notes. We don't have time to let you do these notes. So we're just gonna take a pass at it. And I said, mm. please give me one night. And they did. They said, okay. And, um, and again, they still rewrote it. <laughs> <laughs> but they were like, you know, thank you for taking a, taking a stab at it. And um, yeah, they were really gracious about it. And again, I, I just learned, I'm, I learned so much from them and all of the writers on that show, actually. There was another writer on that show named Mark Richard who really mm -hmm. kind of became a mentor for me. Um, and taught me how to write TV. Very, very cool. We're going to take a quick break to hear from sponsors, and we'll be right back to talk about the showrunner training program and also your overall deal and Nosferatu. Okay, great.
drivingfootage.com provides 4K nine-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. AVGearGuide.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the LA area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital so you can easily share with your friends and family. Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit AVGearGuide.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. And we're back. <laughs> and uh, so now, with with Hell on Wheels, um, I, I read that after Hell on Wheels, you got an overall deal. Um, but that implies that you had done some developing in that time, I'm guessing. Because uh, usually you get overall deals when there's some sort of prospect of, of, of your projects happening. Tell me about that, how that happened. What happened was um, when Hell on Wheels was ending in the final season of Hell on Wheels, I was at some event, some Hell on Wheels event. And truthfully, I can't remember now. It was either like the premiere party or it might have been, um, you know, we went to we went to Oklahoma City for uh, we we won a, a, a Western Heritage Award. Um, I can't remember. It was some like social event for Hell on Wheels hmm. that I was at uh, after we had wrapped the fifth season and and final season. And one of our executives from AMC, a woman named Emma Miller, was there too. And she asked me if I had ever read a book called Nosferatu. And I hadn't, but I knew the novelist, Joe Hill. I had read Lock and Key, his graphic novel, which is fantastic. Hmm. Um, so I said, no, I've never read this, but I like the writer. Um, and she said, well, we have the rights to it. So why don't you read it and tell me if you think that you can do anything with it? Um, so I read it and I loved it and I, you know, was like, I think I, I think I can see how this could be a television show. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she was like, great. So I pitched Nosferatu to her and to AMC and to their producing, their producing partners at the time, Tornante. And, um, everybody was excited about my take on Nosferatu. And at the same time, the third season of Fear the Walking Dead was beginning to gear up and they needed on that show, they needed a, a co-executive producer to kind of uh, help run the writer's room. And so I had a meeting with Dave Erickson, who's the creator and showrunner of that show um, that went really well and he wanted to hire me. Uh, and so it was like a combination of Nosferatu being in development and Fear the Walking Dead joining that staff that led to the overall deal that kind of involved both those things uh and very then cool. while i was working on fear i was mm -hmm. developing nosferatu very cool so so talk about the book in in how you made the how you turned that into a series like what what did you um how i i guess what was your approach in adapting it um sure yeah it was you know the book the book is uh, it's still out there. Um, <laughs> the book is a, a kind of a big sprawling novel that takes place in multiple times, 
multiple locations and uh, multiple realities. <laughs> and, um, you know, in the book, kind of the first thing that I decided to do was in the book, probably about the first third of it, when you meet the main character, Vic McQueen, she's a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, there's kind of a coming of age story that it, that takes up the first third of the book. And then she has her first encounter with the main villain of the story, Charlie Manx, uh, when she's 17. And that happens about a third of the way through the book. And then um, there's a time jump. And then it's Vic as an adult for the rest of the book. And... Um, I really loved that first third of the book. It was very much about Vic's home life. Um, It's set in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is right down the street from where I grew up. I felt like I understood her and her family life. I thought that the way that Joe Hill writes about, um, you know, violence in the family, the way he writes about alcoholism, the way he the way he wrote the McQueen family, I thought was incredibly nuanced and, uh, and I could really identify with it. And so that was kind of my starting point. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I want to protect this portion of the book. The temptation would be to just start Vic as an adult Mm -hmm. and either pick up the story there and never tell this first portion of the book or to tell it as a flashback with a child actor. And I thought, well, if we do that, it won't be as powerful as if we tell it as a story with our Vic, you know, mm. our adult actress Vic playing the role. So, um, so kind of the first departure I made from the book was I said, let's just make her, instead of meeting her at eight years old, we're going to meet her at 18 years old and we will play the first third of the book, but we'll play it as, uh, you know, a teenager on the brink of adulthood. So I still got to tell that kind of coming of age story for her. Mm. Uh, but with the actress that then Ashley Cummings, it turned out to be, who's amazing, um, who we then bring forward into season two. Uh, so I felt like that was a way to kind of honor her coming of age hmm. um, and get the audience with her. Very, very cool. Now, um, at what point did the showrunner training program happen? I, I, I know with showrunner training program that often uh, the people who are, um, their shoulders are tapped to be a part of the program is, is if they're, so there's sort of a, a show that is prospective, that something that you're going to uh, be a showrunner for, and they want you in that program to sort of prepare for it. Was that the case here? Yeah, absolutely. It, um, AMC, I think now, is kind of changing their development model a little bit. But when I was developing Nosferatu, the, their system was I, I wrote a pilot script that they liked, and then I wrote kind of a format document, kind of kind of generally laying out what I thought a first season could look like. And then they had they convened um, a mini writers room without a series commitment. So instead of making a pilot, what they were doing at the time is they would put together these small writers rooms and we would kind of break the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then based on the work that we did, I think we wrote six. It was a t- it was for a 10 episode first season, we broke the season and we wrote six scripts. And based on that material, they were going to decide whether or not to pick the show up to series. And while they were waiting, or while I was waiting, I should say, um, to find out what that decision was going to be, that was when the showrunner training program was happening. And so I, uh, I, I did the showrunner training program like after, when we were when it seemed like we had a pretty good shot of getting a series, but it wasn't, it wasn't a hundred percent, but it seemed, 
I, we were hopeful. <laughs> Very cool. And so, so, and when did you, which year did you do the program? I did the program, um, maybe two years ago now. Two years ago. Yeah. And so what, what was your experience like in the program? Um, was it brand new stuff? Was it just helpful or, or, uh, how, describe that. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was, the best thing about it is that every week a bunch of showrunners would come and talk to us and let us ask questions and talk about their experience. Um, and so it like, that was invaluable. You know, uh, Sean Ryan came and talked to us, John Wells came and talked to us. Um, and then like, all kinds of people from people who had just finished running their first show, um, to people who veterans, like I just mentioned. And, um, yeah, it was really valuable because they all had kind of a different point of view. Everybody kind of like ran into different trouble spots, um, and had different ideas about what to expect. Uh, and yeah, that was definitely worth the price of admission. <laughs> what, what was the biggest takeaway for you? Um, the biggest thing that you, your that uh, that you gleaned from it that helps you in your work today. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I feel like and and I feel like like there's lots of little tidbits that people mm. said along the way that I kind of like uh, I, that I think about in the moment, but that that I'm not thinking about right now. <laughs> <laughs> so forgive me, but I think. Um, one of the takeaways for me, I guess, and I think different people have different takeaways because like I said, it was, it's such a broad experience. Mm. But um, one of the things that, that I grappled with during that program and continue to grapple with, frankly, um, but understand the need for it is uh, the need for difficult conversations. Mm. Um, you know, when you're kind of scrapping your way up as a low-level writer, basically what you're trying to do is be easy to work with. Um, and when you are the person who makes all the decisions, um, it's just a different, it's kind of a different kettle of fish and you wind up having to have difficult conversations with people. And you also, it's a different feeling, you know, when you're like, you know, when I was the, the kind of the second in command at Fear the Walking Dead, for instance, I would pitch my heart out to the showrunner. Mm. Uh, but then ultimately, at the end of the day, it was up to him whether or not to accept my pitch. Do you know what mm. I mean? Um, and then when you are the showrunner, it's up to you. <laughs> yeah. And um, and that's scary and hard for me anyway. I'm sure mm. some people love it. But um, that was kind of the... That was a, that's a thing that I'm still working on. Hmm. Hmm. Very cool. And so, um, talk to me about building a staff for the first time and, and running that that show for the first time. What was that experience like? Um, it was amazing because I had such a great staff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was. I mean, that mini the the first folks that I hired were the folks for the mini writers room and. Um, I'm just remembering who they were. Like most of the folks in that room were people that I had worked with before. I worked mm -hmm. with um, Tom Brady and Mark Richard from Hell on Wheels. So they were kind of like my people. Um, my very good friend from drama school, a phenomenal writer.
writer named uh, Marcus Gardley came and worked on the show. Uh, and there were only two people on there that I hadn't met before. Uh, one is a playwright named Lucy Thurber, who I had been a fan of for years and years and years and was so delighted to finally meet. And then the other one was uh, a woman named Megan Mostyn Brown, who became our co-executive producer in season two. And um, she, AMC actually, sent me her material and they were like, we think this is a great writer. Just check her out. And she's, she was really the only person on the staff that I hadn't, that I didn't know from some other place. And, mm. um, yeah. And she was awesome. So. so that's interesting. So, so, um, a lot of shows have to interview a lot of people, but you really, I guess, didn't do a whole lot of interviewing for that one. Um, I did in season two, I interviewed mm -hmm. more people for season two, uh, and I did a bit in season one, the trick, the trick with the mini room model mm -hmm. and why I actually, I think it's a good thing that AMC is moving away from it is that there's no show pickup. And so it's hard to, I mean, that's a tough thing for writers, um, mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, you may have a job, you may not. And also typically you get paid less to do a mini room than you would for like a full production. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that I was able to lean on people that I knew, uh, who were essentially doing me a favor, mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, um, was part, part of the reason why I was able to get such a great room. It's interesting. That's a model that is much more popular in Canada. In Canada, oh, they, right. they often have those mini rooms there it's popular here in the states too or it's becoming more and more popular um i i've done it for nosferatu working for amc i did it for um an hbo show um and i've done it at stars as well um and it's you know it's one of those things that i think the guild is still the writers guild is kind of wrapping their head around like how to um best support writers through it mm -hmm. um because it is less money um yeah. or has been and uh and it's becoming more and more of a way of doing business although like i said amc is kind of moving away from it so maybe other places will too hmm. uh, is, is it is it more popular in in the sort of uh, cable and streaming shows um than the network tv shows um, that's a good question. I don't, I honestly don't know. I don't know. Uh, I haven't worked on a network show in so long. Hmm. Um, my suspicion is probably just because I feel like network, like a 22 episode procedural is kind of a different beast from a eight or 10 episode, um, serialized drama. Hmm. Um, and it seems like it would be harder to do a mini room for, you know, Law and Order or something. You know, you just have <laughs> yeah. to kind of get um, crunching through it. Um, but I don't. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, you you mentioned that you did some interviewing when you when you interview writers. Um, what are you looking for on the page, and what are you looking for in the interviews? I mean, obviously, this is very specific to the show that you're on, but just yeah. uh, in generally speaking. I mean, I, here's the trick when you, when, when anybody who is reading, who is interviewing a lot of writers is reading a lot of material. Mm -hmm. And, um, I found that what often happens is a lot of the material is the same. Mm -hmm. Um, in turn, like the, you know, when I was, when I was reading people for season two of Nosferatu, for instance, a lot of pilots that I was reading, um, 
had a scene at a strip club and then a scene at a gym where they were boxing. And, um, and so what I found was I preferred reading plays Mm -hmm. just because they were different, you know? Um, and so I guess like it's, it's, I don't know why so many of the pilots that I read kind of had a lot of similar things. And I think it might be, and this is just a guess, that I think that sometimes what, what reps are encouraging their writers, their, their, uh, the people that they represent to write are things that they think that they can sell. Mm. Um, and that may or may not be, um, that may or may not match up with the writer's voice. Mm. And so I guess for me, I'm just always looking for, can you entertain or interest me? And is this something original? And do you have, it's so, you know, I feel like it's a cliche, but I'm looking for a voice and a point of view and something interesting, really. Mm. Um, And the thing, I mean, because this is the other thing, like if, 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 a piece of material has made it to my desk. The writer is probably pretty good. You know, the Hollywood is full of writers that are pretty good. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, the material will have been vetted by a, a bunch of other folks before it ever found its way to me. And so how do you stand out among, you know, a bunch of, a lot of pretty good writers. And I, and I think it, it I think it has to be like, I think that the reader can feel it when it's a labor of love. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think it's about finding something that's specific to a voice and that is unique and, um, has some dramatic tension in it, you know, like, um, yeah. And keeps me interested and engaged. So, so you read the samples and you like the samples. How important is the meeting and, and what are you looking for in the meeting? Um, in the meeting, I think the meeting is important because it's like you're going to spend a lot of time with these people, right? <laughs> Whoever mm-hmm. you are hiring. And um, so for me, it's like there's a couple of different things that you that you kind of think about when you're putting together a writer's room. One is um, a range of experiences and a range of abilities. So I feel like you don't want to have too many low-level folks because then um, – you know, you might get into trouble. You don't want too many upper level folks because then you don't have any kind of like fresh voices. And, um, so it's like, it's, it's personality, it's engagement. And it is, I, again, point of view. And I'm always kind of looking for a diversity of points of view so that we Mm. don't have all the same folks in the writer's room saying all the same thing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, so how, um, what stage is the show at? Uh, like, were you stopped by the virus or were you in between things? We had finished uh, shooting season two hmm. when everything shut down. So, oh, so you did finish shooting. We did finish shooting. We were we were partway through post um, and we've been finishing the show remotely, posting remotely um, since. Uh, and we're almost done. We start. Uh, wow. Yeah, we air uh, June 21st, and um, I think episodes one through nine are complete, and we're just doing last little quality control fixes on episode 10. Wow. 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 So you yeah. actually were quite lucky that way, because I've heard a lot of different stories <laughs> in that. <laughs> yeah. And so is is this picked up for third season already? No. Nope. Not yet. Not yet. Fingers not yet. crossed. Yeah. yeah. I think it depends on how season two does. <laughs> mm, yeah. So how, how do you feel about the current 
landscape. I mean, pe- people call it peak TV. Um, and also, obviously, we have the virus coming in in here as well. Um, compared to, say, maybe 10 years ago and now, how do you feel about the the bigger number of shows, but smaller staffs, shorter orders, and, and all that's wrapped up in that? I mean, you know, it's uncertain. Like, I feel like... Um... I feel like we're living in a very uncertain time. Hmm. Uh, and I, the uncertainty is both terrifying and exciting. Hmm. Um, I, television, I feel like completely changes now, like every couple weeks, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and so the, the terror is a fear of, will I be able to keep up? Am I doing enough? Am I watching? How do I watch all these shows? Um, but the exciting thing is, is that there's such a breadth of voices. Um, people who previously had been kind of locked out of TV were seeing more and more and more. Uh, so that's really exciting. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a level playing field by any stretch, but I do feel like there's more, uh, there are more kinds of shows and, um, told by more people. Um, you're seeing more women showrunners, you're seeing Mm. more people of color running shows. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's still just barely scratching the surface, but, um, but there does I, I hope that as things continue to change, that that'll continue to open up and we'll get to see, you know, again, like all kinds of stuff. So that's mm. exciting. Um, yeah. And just a little scary. Cause you're like, Oh, I feel like I figured it out. Oh no, wait, it's changing again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So if you could speak to you, to a younger version of yourself, like time travel back to 20 years ago, what would you tell the younger self um, based on what you know now? I mean, I guess I would say uh, when people tell you to write a spec, write a spec. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's really funny. And, and, and I remember when actually when I was getting out of graduate school, uh, there was a playwright uh, who was who gave us a workshop named Karen Hartman. And she, her advice to us, uh, us third year students who are about to be out in the world, she said, um, she said, my advice to you is very simple. She said, first of all, you're going to be OK. She said, you know, like, d- just try to tone down the terror. And um, and she was like, and secondly, she said, if people ask to read your script, send it to them. If people do something nice for you, thank them. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time being like, oh, yeah, so obvious. So glad that, you know, what great advice, Karen. Um, but then like now looking back, I realized so often people asked me for a sample and I just never sent it because I was scared mm-hmm. um, or said, you know, write a spec. And I literally didn't do it for years. And mostly because I was scared. You know, what mm-hmm. if I what if it's not good enough? And um, so I guess. I would give myself the advice that Karen gave myself and, and hope that I listened to it a little bit better. Um, try not to let the terror overwhelm you and, um, you know, follow up on things. People will, people will ask you for things and just do the, do the things that they ask you to do. You know, it's like a really simple thing, but I feel like not everybody does it. Hmm. And are, are there any mistakes that you see younger writers making that, that, uh, if you said one, if you could say one thing to people sort of coming up the ranks, um, any, any of the things you learned from the show on our training program and other things you've learned along the way, what would you say um, to that group of people? Um, I mean, I, I feel like 
I would say write, keep writing, and also don't try to outsmart the marketplace or think that you can, um, I would say ignore the marketplace, mm. actually. Because I think that what, I think, like I was talking about earlier, when I read a pile of pilots that are essentially the same story, those things, even though they may have been written by um, capable writers, your eyes just start to glaze over. And I think that what we need is um, passionate people who are passionate about the stories that they're telling. And like I said, again, a kind of diversity of voices. And so, you know, it may sound cliche, but really write what you feel passionately about. Have a point of view. Tell us something. Um, do something that you care about. Um, because I do think that it comes through on the page. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I think that is a great place to end up, and you've been very generous with your time. Um, and uh, I guess here's hoping that you'll get a season three and a lot more stories to tell. We will see. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much, Greg. And that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Please watch for new episodes every Tuesday on all of the places you can find the podcast. Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, the tvwriterpodcast.com site, or also at scriptmag.com, and now also on Pandora. And if you're on Instagram, please follow at tvwriterpodcast. Please do subscribe. Please do follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it for as little as 25 cents per episode. You can find out how you can become a patron of the podcast or a sponsor of the podcast at tvwriterpodcast.com slash support. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.